Friday, November 19th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I am Jonathan Mavrotis, Senior Writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel, and Edison publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Programming Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Cal- of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Lee, in your recent California uh, on your mind column, uh, you write that there's some fuzzy math going on at the San Francisco Unified School District regarding what they would call positive outcomes resulting from their school's curriculum changes. You write, since 2014, San Francisco Unified School District changed its curriculum by delaying Algebra 1 by year and eliminating accelerated classes, thus requiring all kids, irrespective of their math aptitude or advanced advancement readiness, to be in the same classes and to wait until ninth grade to take Algebra 1. Um, the San Francisco Unified School District reports that the changes succeeded by increasing the number of Hispanics and Blacks taking advanced courses while not holding back high, high achievers. Uh, SFUSD and advocates of California's proposed math curriculum have been, prom- have been promoting uh, San Francisco's approach, including trumpeting the breathtaking statistic that the number of kids who needed to repeat Algebra 1 declined from 40% to 8%. Uh, families of San Francisco, however, an advocacy group aimed at improving San Francisco's governance, dug into the SFUSD uh, data, and they found that Algebra 1 grades had not improved with the new curriculum. Uh, Lee, can you explain what's going on here? Yeah, so um, as a backdrop, Jonathan, California more broadly, the entire state, the Department of Education has been pushing for a change in how we teach math to kids. And the Department of Education has been advocating for a shift to what they would call diversity math with the idea that math education as currently taught is biased against, um, against Hispanic kids, against black kids, um, but not against white kids. And they have been using San Francisco Unified School District statistics to promote this idea. And yeah, you mentioned this just breathtaking statistic that Algebra One retakes have declined from 40% to 8%. And if there is a curriculum change that could legitimately do that, I think every specialist in education in the, in the world would be, would be shocked and say, that sounds like a breakthrough best practice that we all should adopt. Uh, and, and sadly, it, this falls into the category of sometimes what is too good to be true isn't true. And, and, and sadly, this is the case. So the reason that Algebra One retakes in San Francisco had dropped from 40% to 8% is because at the same time, San Francisco delayed kids taking algebra and eliminating a lot of accelerated classes. What happened is that they also decided that San Francisco Unified School District students no longer to have to pass the Algebra One state competency requirement. (laughs) So what we have is an enormous drop in Algebra One retakes because kids no longer need 
to retake algebra one, they can advance without being considered competent at the state level. Um, so this, as I say in the article, is, is really moving the goalposts and really doesn't point to any benefit from the change in, in teaching. Um, you know, I went on to look at it simply competency rates at different grade levels. And in San Francisco has some of the worst performing high schools in the state. Uh, for example, at Mission High School, you know, no black students tested at the proficient level. Not one, not one black student tested proficient. Only 1% of Hispanic students tested proficient. So the state is advancing its idea for diversity mathematics curriculum change on the basis of, of these statistics that simply um, are, are not legitimate in terms of advocating for this change. It's, um, it's something that people just don't know about and, and they should because this, in my opinion, would be a wrong, a wrong street to turn down. So Lee, help me understand this. The teaching of math is racially biased or racially unfair. Is it, is it that kids are not kids of different race are learning math differently or at different paces, or is it that somehow the teaching itself discriminates? Because uh, you're just teaching kids numbers. I don't see how that is racially discriminatory. Yeah, Bill, you know, about two years ago, I first became aware of this idea that math was, was racially biased. And, you know, as, as you just mentioned, um, mathematics is, is, is clear cut. Two, yeah. two plus two is four. Uh, the, the Pythagorean theorem <clears throat> is the Pythagorean theorem. Um, there's no black or white uh, or Hispanic or Asian or Pacific Islander or, you know, multi-gender, multi-racial component to this. Math is math. So this always puzzled me. I've written about it quite a bit. I've learned about it over the last couple of years. Um, and the state's education department would have you believe that Mathematics was aimed, mathematics instruction was aimed at helping elite white males be able to move on to elite colleges uh, back in the day, places like Harvard and Yale and Princeton. Uh, mm -hmm. And that it was, the deck was stacked against anyone who wasn't an elite white male. Um, Bill, the, the huge 800 pound gorilla in the room against that argument is that kids from Asian backgrounds are the most successful, much right. more successful than white kids. And the idea that racial disparities are because of the way mathematics is taught is simply not supported by the data. What is true is that black students and Hispanic students tend to have very, very low proficiency rates. They tend to, they, they tend to attend some of the worst schools in the state where teachers are not competent, not that they're not good teachers, but they're not competent at teaching mm -hmm. mathematics. Um, and there's a simple solution, which is hire better math teachers. Um, that's the solution, but uh, instead we keep throwing millions and millions of dollars at um, really at red herrings, uh, such as racism and, and, uh, and white supremacy that as far as I can tell have nothing to do whatsoever. And as long as we pretend that is the problem, 
with why black students and Hispanic students are not succeeding at a rate that we would like them to and are not able to compete for STEM jobs as they get older, as long as we keep pretending about the causes of that, they will continue to be deficient in math training and not be able to ha have access to those kind of careers. So it really is um, a 180 degree flip on the idea that this is racism. What I see as racist is that these kids are stuck in schools where math, math teaching is just plain old deficient. Right. Since we last spoke, gentlemen, um, Governor Newsom uh, missed the International Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. Um, and the reason he gave to the public was that he had been missing precious time with his family and that he would be making this time up during Halloween. Uh, last week, he was spotted at a wedding of a member of the J. Paul Getty dynasty in San Francisco. Uh, the, Daily Mall, the Daily Mail reported that according to an anonymous source, the actual reason he bailed on the Scotland trip was because he experienced side effects from the COVID-19 booster shot. The governor responded by saying that those reports were uh, misogos. Uh, it's astonishing that Newsom would miss an occasion in which he would present the leadership, his leadership on climate change on the international stage, a cause of top political priority during his governorship. Bill, this is the subject of your California On Your Mind column this week. Uh, what do you think the governor, why do you think the governor has gone AWOL a better part of this month? Well, um, so, so there are a couple of takeaways here. I want to get Lee's thoughts on this as well. Uh, what led up to, so first of all, uh, Gavin Newsom went missing at the end of October through um, about the first half of November, just went dark. He just didn't do public events. He, uh, uh, to the extent that he was on social media, it was pre-recorded things, you know, anniversaries and things like that. He didn't make news. He didn't tell you where he was. It's just shocking for a public figure of his stature to go dark like that. And in this day and age, when you go off the grid, uh, especially if you're a social media animal like Gavin Newsom, some uh, conspiracy crowd, the tinfoil hat crowd will pile in with all kinds of rumors of what happened to you, especially when the last time he saw the governor was when he was getting a jab in each of his shoulders. He got a flu shot and then he got a Moderna booster. Uh, so immediately the first school thought was uh, the, Moderna booster, the Moderna booster went wrong and he, there was one theory that he had uh, Bell's palsy, that part of his face was frozen and he couldn't talk and that's why I didn't see him. Um, there are rumors that he had died and that's why you couldn't see him. Um, there were uh, rumors that he was getting plastic surgery. That's why you couldn't see him. There are rumors that he was having uh, marital problems. His family's having problems. You just name it. Uh, my favorite rumor was uh, actually at the wedding you mentioned, uh, the Getty family in San Francisco, who were you know, largely responsible for his financial well-being, uh, that actually it wasn't Newsom. It was a body double at the wedding. And so you just sort of had the whole grassy knoll um, crowd descend upon Sacramento to figure out what happened to Gavin Newsom. Uh, his explanation was that he told his kids a few days before Halloween that he and the wife were headed off to Scotland for the COP26 summit and that he would not be there for Halloween and that his four kids who are ages 12 and under uh, just really had a fit and Halloween's a big deal in the Newsom family. And so Newsom felt guilty as a father uh, and he stayed. And it could be as simple as that, but when he blows off a chance to really pontificate about climate change and to be hailed by all the international swells in the Glasgow conference, which is kind of the you know climate change version of the Davos thing, uh, it's rather shocking that he did not go. So there you are. Um, I think, Lee, it could have been, as, uh, there's easier way the governor could have handled this. We just could have simply put out a picture at some point during his absence, just showing him pushing papers in the office or hanging out with his kids or on a date night with the wife or something like that. He just didn't have to vanish altogether. 
together. I'd add, by the way, that his wife kind of complicated matters because a few days before he did resurface, she went on Twitter uh, in one of his classic cases of people should think their Twitter before they post it. And she said it could just be simple as folks as he had work to do here in Sacramento. He wanted to spend more time with the kids, with his wife. And then she put these rather acid words that, at the end telling people to get a life. And it's one of those tweets that got yanked about 30 seconds after she posted it, but just long enough for a reporter to capture it. So, so Lee, I think in this, uh, the moral of the story here is this day in, the, this day and age, uh, you just can't vanish from social media for that long. No, you can't. And it's, Bill, it's almost as if um, I can't imagine it being handled any worse yeah. in the sense of just 10 or 15 or 20 just completely off the rail nutty ideas about what happened to Governor Newsom and why isn't he appearing. Um, all he had to say was, uh, I, I really need to spend time with my family. And uh, yeah, and throw out a few pictures of him working. Um but uh, it is, yeah, I, I can't imagine it being handled any worse than this. Yeah. And, um, and Newsom not attending the climate summit, uh, I don't know, is about, is about equivalent to the general manager of a football team not going to the Super Bowl where the team is going to play. I mean, Gavin, Gavin advertises California as the leader in climate change. Uh, dealing with climate change and making all the tough decisions and signing executive orders banning gasoline-powered cars and banning production of fossil fuels. And this is really his call to arms. This is what he is about 24-7. And the idea that he would miss this opportunity to tell the world all what California is doing, even even if it makes absolutely no economic sense, even if you are the most ardent climate activist, some of the things right. that we're doing here makes no economic sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that he would miss that uh, to me is, 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 is absolutely shocking. I can certainly understand the desire and, and the need to spend time with family. Right. Um, but, uh, but, but that absence um, really, really speaks volumes to me. It did. And it's, you know, there was still a considerable California contingent that went to this. Uh, the Lieutenant Governor, Lenny Kunalakis, filled in for Governor Newsom. And I think about 15 lawmakers and uh, gubernatorial aides tagged lawn burning considerable climate uh, carbon in the process of going to Scotland. Um, by the way, the irony of the governor staying in California and going to a wedding that is thrown by people whose fortune is owned to by the simpler what? Fossil fuels, the Gettys or oil people. That's kind of kind of ironic when you think about it. But uh, one thing I'd point about this is that uh, even though you know, Newsom got kicked around for going dark, um, we see a contrast here. And it's a contrast between Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris um, at all times. I'm just always fascinated by this because these two really have had parallel pads for the past decade or so. They both first ran for statewide office in 2010. Uh, they then you know, took you know, different uh, avenues in 2016. She ran for the Senate to take over Barbara Boxer's seat. Newsom ran for governor in 2018. They've both been seen as national uh, presidential prospects. Harris actually running for president in 2019 uh, before bailing out. But what you see here, Lee and Jonathan, is uh, it's very funny. If you asked me a year ago, who has it better, Gavin Newsom or, or Kamala Harris? 
but it said Kamala without doubt. And that's because, first of all, she was a vice president uh, in a new administration and pretty obvious that she could be the next Democratic nominee, whereas Newsom was dealing with COVID. And I think about a year ago at this time, he was headed off to the French laundry. And so, you know, he kind of hit, hit a trough at, about this time a year ago. But here we are a year later, and she is having a very hard time in Washington this week. Uh, there's a very nasty Politico article, which just talked about um, just all this criticism of her, her staff. It was just everybody piling on her. Uh, they're uncomfortable questions about her responsibilities within the administration. Her communications chief uh, quit the other day. This is a bad week. Meanwhile, Gavin Newsom, even though he vanished for 10 days, which you cannot do in Washington, D.C., by the way, but you can get away with this in Sacramento. He sits in Sacramento with a supermajority in the legislature, not a badly divided Congress, but a compliant legislature. And he has money to burn, Lee. The uh, Legislative Analyst Office put out its annual fiscal outlook this week. Uh, it predicts a $31 billion, that's billion with a B, folks, a $31 billion surplus for the 2022 budget year, which begins in July. Uh, the state's on pace to have so much money that will exceed the constitutional limit on state spending, the so-called GAN limit, Lee, by $26 billion over three years here, Lee. So the question is, if California has $26 billion to burn to do with it, What's it going to do, Lee? Are we going to see tax cuts? Are we going to see more spending? What's What do you think the governor and legislature are going to do? Because I have a sneaky feeling that Bill and Lee and Jonathan will not see a dime of this. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not holding my breath uh, for my for my refund. Um, uh, Bill, a bunch of interesting points. Let me just touch on um, Kamala Harris for one moment. Um, the vice, you know, for better or for worse, the job of being vice president is, is really hard to do badly at. I mean, if I think back in my lifetime, um, you know, who really blew that job? Um, Spiro Agnew. Um, you have to go back to Spiro Agnew. Um, but that was really uh, that was really unconscionable. That was corruption. Um, Dan Quayle um, for someone who probably shouldn't have been vice president. Um, it's, but I can't really think of anyone else who performed to the point of having three out of four people think they were doing a bad job, which right now, Kamala Harris is approval rating is somewhere between 25 and 30%. Um, yeah. so it's, uh, you know, it, it takes some doing to really be unpopular as, oh, uh, as Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Burr did kill a guy. So. <laughs> I did say during my lifetime, <laughs> but 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 absolutely right. It's uh, there aren't many vice presidents who distinguish themselves quite as badly as she has uh, in this uh, in the in this first year. I think um, I think she just is a persona that's maybe just not perfectly matched for for that job. I think she she's gotten that she you know, she was very successful as an attorney. Uh, I think that's the job where she belongs. Um, and I think the re and I think people found that out very quickly during her presidential run, which was extremely brief. Um, yeah, well, she's she's easy to blame, Lee, in several regards. First of all, she in her defense, she's been handed some losing issues that the president clearly did not want. She was tasked with trying to get a voting rights bill through the Senate, which was not going to go anywhere. And so she got stuck with that. Uh, she's been tasked with the Southern border and she's just you know, in overhead with that. And Joe Biden would have been as well. So that's kind of like you know, being a javelin catcher, as they say in, in track and field. Uh, so that's not good. But I, th I think you also see she's just catching on on several fronts. First of all, the president's poll numbers are bad. Hers are 
or even worse. And it's very easy to blame her when the president's probably the problem here and not the vice president. But then secondly, what's interesting, um, and let's we'll get too DC about this since it's a California podcast, but um, her staff, I think she carried over just one or two people leave from her Senate staff into the vice president's office. It's a lot of people who worked for Obama, a lot of people for Biden, some Clinton people. It's a lot of people owed favors now working for her. Um, and that creates two problems. Number one, people around you who are not necessarily that loyal to you. Uh, and then secondly, those Senate staffers floating around Washington are probably very bitter that they're not along for the ride. So it's a freeing, you know, it's a field day for a reporter who's just looking for somebody to dump on her. And so that's what you're getting here. But you know, I'm just it'd be interesting to see if we have this conversation a year from now to see how Newsom and Harris are doing, since they just seem to kind of go up and down, uh, you know, vis-a-vis each other's fortunes. But I'd just say right now his arrow is decidedly up and hers right now is decidedly down. That's, uh, yeah, yep, that's the direction. That's the direction, and his arrows even further up because of thirty-one billion dollars surplus, thanks to all those reviled one-tenth of top one percenters who well, continue to pay an enormous capital gains tax. Uh, let me let me let me read a couple stats to you here, Lee. Get your thoughts yeah. on this as an economist. So, first of all, from April through June of this year, California businesses Lee reported a record high two hundred and sixteen point eight billion in, t- in taxable sales. That's a thirty-eight point eight percent over the uh, increase over the same period in 2020 and a 17.4% increase over those same months in 2019. September lead collections from taxes on income sales and corporations were 40% higher than September of last year, almost 60% higher than September of 2019. So Lee, these are very dizzying numbers here, but I think I see two troubling signs. Number one, um, massive capital gains um, for capital for California's wealthiest amid the pandemic is part of what's driving this train. This stock market's been going berserk the past year. Wealthy people in California are taking full advantage. It means a lot of money coming into the Sacramento's coffers since we since we tax this income here. But the other issue here, Lee, is that you see the economy being driven because you have record consumer spending. And that's thanks to what? The state and the federal government be giving people money, which people then put into play. But then guess what that causes? Inflation. Yeah, and, and that's, that's exactly what's happened. Inflation is way, way above what the Federal Reserve had uh, targeted. Um, the Federal Reserve and the Biden administration both were saying, even just a month or two ago, that this is just one-time blip in prices, reflect supply chain issues, don't panic, don't worry. Yeah, Janet Yellen saying that. But inflation is here, and inflation is not just a one-time issue. The latest numbers that we're seeing are some of the worst inflation numbers we've seen in over in over 30 years. And in California, it's even worse than that. Um, California CPI is rising faster than the country, and that's exactly because of those checks that Uncle Gavin and Uncle Joe have sent out to families who are now buying them. And you know, there's only so many goods to buy. Inflation occurs when there's more liquidity chasing relatively fewer goods. And when that happens, the competition for those goods mean prices rise. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. Uh, and one of the prices that are rising is housing. Housing prices have just gone through the roof, particularly in California. Um, you know, you can take a look, you know, go to Zillow, type in San Francisco, check out the median price. Home, which is about going to be, I'm going to guess, about 1.7 million. Uh, and take a look at what the 1.7 million buys. Uh, you're going to want to take a wrecking ball to it. And that's after you plunk down 1.7 million George Washingtons. Um, so 
for, again, for the state that prides itself on being so progressive, so politically liberal, the home of those who have the backs of the most vulnerable and the less fortunate, in, in practice, it's the exact opposite. The homeless are no better off. Those who are one rent payment away or one car payment away from being evicted are no better off. Those who had, who had been saving for, to buy a home for seven or eight years, they're worse off. The, uh, these are government policies um, that have depressed mortgage rates, have depressed interest rates, that have at some level, it's hard to say how much, but at some level have elevated the stock market. Um, so the benefit is that Gavin has a, many billions of dollars to spend. He says it's gonna be spent on one-time infrastructure, um, which would be a good choice uh, if that is, if, and so I hope, I hope he does fix dams and bridges and roads and all the stuff in, in schools. All the stuff that has had deferred maintenance, not for one or two years, right. in some cases, not even for one or two decades. So I hope he does that. But what will be politically more expedient is uh, is to have at least a chunk of the, those twenty six billion um, sent back in, uh, in 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 tax refund checks, but um, only to only to a only to a certain group. Um, so uh, to low-income and middle-income people. Um, so I suspect at the end of the day, we'll see that. Uh, but I do hope he sticks to his word about spending it on capital investment projects. We really need that. Yeah, we need that. And also, as you pointed out, it's one-time money because the cardinal sin here is to spend money and lock it into the budget. And then you're caught in this game of spending and taxes and so forth. But, you know, it's interestingly to be a California, you know, one thing about California people understand, middle class is a pretty wide definition here. Uh, it's interesting, in Palo Alto, the, uh, the local newspaper did a survey of the residents and asked them to define middle class. And people who made about $300,000 a year describe, describe themselves as middle class. And why is that? Well, it's the housing in Palo Alto, the cost of living, the lifestyle and all that. So they feel kind of average, if you will. But if you're in that you know, $300,000 class right now to $400,000 in California, uh, I don't know what you're going to get back from the state in terms of a refund. It's going to go to lower earners. And then you look at Washington, Lee, where they're having this big fight over SALT, the uh, you know state and local tax limit or not. And uh, you see it bouncing over the place because um, they were not going to go very strong on SALT. And then they had to to keep uh, California and New Jersey and New York Democrats on board. And now Bernie Sanders wants to tinker with it. And so there's talk about maybe expanding up to $80,000 and drawing it back down and no making making an income, you know, tested to maybe three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. Um, if you're just in that kind of, you know, section of California where you're doing well, but you're not necessarily crushing it because it's more expensive here than other states, you're looking for help. You're not finding it anywhere. Yeah, you're looking for help. So your household might be um, a um, two parents, one a physician, one an attorney, yeah. Pulling yeah. down three hundred seventy-five thousand, paying off medical school loans, paying off law school loans, paying for childcare, which is which high-quality childcare in California is expensive for the four-year-old and the two-year-old, and you know paying on a one-point-four million-dollar mortgage uh, and saving for private school, and um, they feel like they're running in place and running faster and faster and not getting anywhere, and yeah, for that family that check is not coming back to them. So um, what's interesting, um, you know, another interesting aspect to this bill is that, um, uh, is that there's these myths floating around uh, among the electorate. Um, 
about progressives in the Democratic Party and, and how they really are serving the best interests of people with low incomes um, or student debt or up to middle incomes, those who are financially struggling. And at the end of the day, um, uh, I mean, what I see when you mentioned that, <laughs> that Democrats in New York and California and New Jersey uh, and Connecticut are fighting for the continued deductibility of sales and local taxes, um, at the end of the day, it's <laughs> the political system is run by elites and some are, some, some are called Democrats and some are called Republicans. And it's simply a pure myth that is anything other than that. And I think the faster people, people on the far left understand that, um, the, the better. Uh, I have a friend who listens a lot to uh, super progressive talk radio, uh, and they're very upset with, they're very, very upset with Biden and Harris, and they're very upset with Newsom. They're very upset with, uh, and, it, and what's interesting about this is, you know, in, in the twain we shall meet, um, we're talking about this here from what people perceive to be a, cons a conservative, politically conservative institution, the Hoover Institution. Uh, and we're talking about the same stuff that those on super far left progressive political radio are talking about. Huh. Go figure. You know, meantime, Lee, despite all the money in California, there are two issues that the governor cannot solve, but has to figure a way to deal with. And one, as we've talked about, is inflation, the cost. I mean, a Thanksgiving meal is, I think, 14% more expensive than it was last year. And then other, the one thing that stands out, anytime somebody comes to visit me in California, Lee, the first thing I notice, the price of gasoline. You know, is that a four in front of it? That can't be right. Yes, it's a four in front of it. Well, now it's a five in front of it in a lot of places. You're, you're down in Santa Barbara. I hate to think what it is in some parts of Santa Barbara, but yeah, it's just a, it's an interesting uh, you know, kind of a contradiction we have in California. Uh, travel is going to be very busy in California for Thanksgiving. It's going to be very close to pre-pandemic levels, and yet people are going to be paying a lot more to get in their cars. I think about 80% of travel in this, in this state is by car, not by plane. Uh, airline tickets are very expensive. I'm uh, talking to you from the East Coast where I flew last week. Not a, not a cheap ticket to come here because, you know, airlines are driven by oil and fuel prices as well. So on the one hand, the state could be flush in money. On the other hand, people kind of looking at everyday living, which is, you know, buying their food at the grocery store and putting gas in their car, you know, no bueno. No bueno. And these are the, um, these are the issues that voters really, really react to strongly because they're singing it all the time. They're going to the grocery store three times a week. They're going to the gas station twice a week. So this is really what does ire voters and really gets them to push back against politicians. And um, and Bill, I don't know. I haven't seen a I haven't seen a four. <laughs> I haven't seen a four for a while. I've seen a lot of fives. I even traveled to the Arco station and and it was it was it was the low fives, but it was it was still the fives. Um, and and uh, and what was you know, you know and again kind of getting back to this idea about. Um, progressive politicians are simply, I think, hiding behind a veil. What did Gavin Newsom respond to when gas prices came up recently? He said, we just have to get out of these fossil fuels. There's just no other, there's no other solution. We just have to get out of these fossil fuels. Well, you know, what does that say to the landscaper who's barely making a living and driving a 14 year old truck and has a gas-powered blower uh, and a gas-powered lawnmower. What does that say to him? Yeah. Um, so again, we get back to this issue of, uh, you know, who's looking out for the majority of Californians um, who are really struggling. Um, 
in my opinion, I don't think it is most of the people who are sitting in political office. Um, and, you know, when you get down to it, uh, you look at the price of California gas, it really boils down to incredibly high gas taxes. And then pe people understand that. And then, you know, they drive, they're driving down the street. And if there's no traffic, they can cross over the dash line and avoid that pothole. But if there is traffic, they're going to have to hit that pothole. And they've hitting that, been hitting that pothole now for four straight years. And the streets aren't getting fixed, despite the fact that we have the highest gas taxes yep. in the country. And then what comes out of Sacramento? Oh, geez, you know, these fossil fuels. We got, you know, we got, we got to get out of fossil fuels. Yeah, you're right, Lee. The governor did say we need to turn away from fossil fuels. And then he also said that Californians have to, uh, his word, quote, disenthrall themselves from being victims of petro politics. So disenthrall, Lee. So I think he spent part of his time off the web reading a, a syllabus, but <laughs> Dis and, disenthrall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, for uh, for that landscaper who's driving the truck that's 14 or 20 years old, that gets 12 miles a gallon because he can't afford to buy something, he can't afford to buy the Tesla uh, and to those people who are commuting 50 miles each way a day because they've got to live in uh, they've got to live in Temecula to get to there because they can't afford to live near downtown San Diego. Um, it just ends up being just remarkably tone deaf. And um, this gets sort of into a, a, a different conversation we'll have, I'm sure, down the road. But um, again, you know, what does it take for those folks we're talking about? to push back even stronger when it comes to time to vote. Um, are they gonna continue to vote in the people that say, hey, you know what? Forget about your, forget about your love affair with, uh, with fossil fuels. Um, forget about having that job that requires you to drive so much. You know, go, go find something else to do. Do they continue to elect those people or not? Because they have been electing those people and this is what they're getting in return. Yeah, by the way, Lee, if you wanna break up with fossil fuels, I have a buddy who ordered a Tesla the other day. Six month wait to get it. And I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know if Elon Musk has run out of chips or if there's a supply chain problem or what. But six months to get a car, good heavens! Yeah, uh, there's just such a demand for those cars, and uh, and California, I mean, blew it big time with Musk. Um, not only did he decide to move his headquarters to Austin, and that he moved to himself to Austin, but that all of those tax breaks, all of those tax credits that come with California's, you know, Byzantine electrical, uh, electric um, vehicle regulations uh, and credits, um, the idea was that Tesla and Musk was going to be here for the long haul. And that all that tax credit money we gave to Musk was really a form of an investment that would pay off enormously for California. Well, <laughs> Elon took the money and ran. It didn't have to be this way, but he didn't see any feasible way really to expand his operations, his production operations in Fremont, California. Um, and he saw a political and economic climate that just meant you know, despite these tax credits I'm getting now, the, now, now that I've ramped up to my business and now that I'm making a profit on my cars, for a long time he wasn't. He was simply making profits from all the tax credits he got and he sold back to others. Now that he's making profits on his car, he's finding Texas to be a better place to be. 
Um, he still so he still has he still has one home for sale in California. Uh, it's in Hillsboro, north of uh, north of Palo Alto, south of San Francisco. It's uh, I think it was originally about thirty five million. It's down to about thirty million right now. It's an incredible nineteen twenties house, uh, utterly impractical for a small family. But if you're a Californian listening and you're trying to figure out what to do with your bonus next year, your <laughs> dividend, Elon <laughs> Musk has a house he'd like to sell you. Yeah, you t- you too can own that home. Um, he sell yeah he he I believe he had what he had five. I think yeah. he had five yeah. homes in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the handwriting was on the wall over a year ago when he started putting those up for sale. Um, and it, uh, you know, in, in the private sector, I think what would have happened is that somebody would have called him up and said, hey, we need we want you to stay here. What do we need? Let's fig- let's figure out a way to keep you here in California. Um, and then just weeks before Musk announced um that he was moving um, and going to be taking a big chunk of Tesla with him uh, just weeks before that. Newsom said, oh, I, I love the guy. I've known him for years. Uh, yeah, he's not going. I think he said he's not going anywhere. Um, and Cal Supreme's, uh, there, there he went. Um, so this is as if California wrote a really big check to Texas um, and is getting cashed in there. Um, and California tends to. Uh, we tend to compete for businesses by trying to offer them tax breaks early on to get them to come here because we know it's so expensive to do business, it's expensive for people to live here, with the idea that they put roots in and then they get so successful and the roots become so deep that they're they're not they're not going to go somewhere else. Um, they're going they are going elsewhere, and these tax dollars that we're using from from all of us. Um, are essentially being shipped off to other states. Gentlemen, I'd like to um, revisit the um, state, uh, the projected state surpluses, uh, especially in respect to um, the future of pension, uh, public uh, public sector pension reform in California. A Wall Street Journal editorial this week criticized the Biden administration for threatening to withhold transportation funds from California unless it rolls back its pension reforms. Uh, the journal notes that the Obama administration tried to do the same a decade ago, but failed after Jerry Brown sued in federal court. Um, does the Fed's obvious play to the public sector unions have enough political momentum? And the state surpluses we talked about factoring those in, um, can, can those together surmount um, Gavin Newsom's objections that a, roll, that a rollback of um, pension, pension reforms would be too costly? Well, this is uh, this is a huge problem for California because while we're not we're not in we're not the worst among fifty states, uh, Illinois is much worse. Um, we have an enormous underfunded pension problem, and Democrat Jerry Brown tried really really hard to implement substantial reforms uh, in the pension arena. And a lot of this gets down into the weeds and rabbit holes, but um, long story short, Brown was able to get some modest reforms through. They're very sensible reforms. He had a number of other sensible reforms uh, that he couldn't get through. So it would be absolutely the wrong idea to roll back pensions. Um, We want to get people ultimately, from an economic point of view, pensions no longer make any sense from the standpoint of tying a worker to a particular job within the California, to to a particular employer, the state of California. Um, 
We're now in a situation where workers change jobs all the time. We want them to move around to be able to access opportunities that are better than the one they have right now. Um, but what pensions do is they, they entice political irresponsibility and they also lock in people to, to a job or to a single employer for a long, long time. Um, so both of, those, both of those are very wrong. And then we just saw, though I didn't get the details, you may know about this, uh, but it's very interesting. CalPERS, I believe CalPERS announced um, that they were gonna be managing their portfolios differently because they weren't going to be, they, they didn't think they were going to get the rate of return that they need. Um, so along with political irresponsibility comes the potential for becoming riskier with pension fund investments. Um, you look at a state like Wisconsin, their pensions are funded uh, at about 100%, meaning that actuarially they have put enough money into their pension fund system to be able to pay out their retirees uh, without having to raise taxes, without having to borrow. Uh, California, I don't know the latest numbers, our colleague Josh Rao would know that. Uh, I think California is close, it's somewhere in the 60s, meaning we're, we're 30 some odd percent underfunded. And why are we underfunded? Because politicians have chosen not to fund those, not to fund those pensions. Um, so you know, we just keep kicking the kicking the can down the road on this. Um, but federal pressure to roll those back is just, it would be just a, a, an incredibly wrong move. Um, and it's, uh, and from an economic point of view, it just makes no sense whatsoever. Um, the last I saw, CalPERS, uh, which is the California Public Employees and Retirement System, uh, it's about 70% uh, fully. Um, 70%. But here's okay. the problem. Here's the problem, though. CalPERS um, does its investment earnings based on about a 7% return yearly. And over the last 20 years or so, it's been averaging about 5.5%. So it's just not it's not filling to the tank, if you will. So how do you solve this? There are only one of three ways you could do this. Number one, you have to have higher returns. Well, how are you going to get higher returns? You're going to go invest in Brazilian, you know, you know, banana futures or something like that. Just you're going to become very aggressive, and that's going to be volatile. That's not sensible. Or you're going to have to require government employers and employees to pay more, which is not going to be popular. Or the least popular of all, you're going to have to reduce future benefits. Um, so those are three roads that you know nobody wants to go down. Certainly not the last two. So uh, I do think this though, if the federal government um, tries to push around lawmakers in Sacramento. Uh, over pensions and what to do. I think there's going to be two two word response to Sacramento. And those two words will not be Merry Christmas. Uh, <laughs> just you do not get between Democrats and the public employees retirement system, plain plain and simple. But you know, you raise an interesting point, Lee, that um, uh, that you know uh, Jerry Brown tangled with this to his credit. He wanted to take this on uh, early in his uh, first or second of his uh, of his uh, last two terms and uh, got a little bit into it, but couldn't get very far. And he kind of sort of declared victory and walked away from it. Uh, Newsom, as far as I could tell, does not have a stomach for it. And as long as we're not in a recession, as long as the market does hum along like this, um, people are willing to kick the can down the road. But it's very analogous, Lee, to what's going on at the federal level with uh, with uh, you know with with Social Security and, and Medicare, uh, things which are going to come to fruition very soon. But no one's paying attention to it. Nobody wants to touch it. To it, not to, nobody wants to touch them because simply it's going to be very unpleasant if you really want to fix the system. Which again, getting back to California, is you're going to have to change the the contribution. Or you have to change the benefits. Yeah, it really is a game of musical chairs at the state level and at the federal level. And and um, 
you know, it's can kick in time, it's can kick in time for really since Reagan took on Social Security in the early 80s. So that's been almost 40 years. And, and sadly, just like a game of musical chairs, it gets riskier and riskier the longer you wait. We can solve these things now um, without nearly the pain as if we wait 10 years. And this happened because of, the, because of demog- demographics are similar in California as they are across the country. Yeah. It's, this, it's the same for fixing it here as, as it is at the at the federal level. Um, and it's also, no, it's, also worth, it's also worth noting that when Jerry Brown did delve into this, uh, it was against the backdrop of a real budget calamity, uh, a fiscal cliff that he talked about. Uh, and so it was belt tightening and you know raising taxes and all sorts of measures because California is lacking uh, revenue. A decade later, that's not the situation. So Lee, to try to attack pensions while Sacramento's awash in money, just again, it's just going to be another reason for Democrats just to, you know, turn turn a deaf ear to this problem. Yeah, deaf, deaf, deaf ear is right. Um, and that's a great point that, that Brown brought this up at a time of real financial exigency for the state. Right. Um, and, you know, when we look, uh, you know, when we look at this, um, it's, it's going to be, I mean, it's, it's going to be tough to deal with uh, in the sense that um, Newsom, as far as I can tell, just has no has he, he doesn't have one fingertip on any of this, uh, and yet he's setting up to the extent that the Democratic Party continues in California, he's setting up his successor or successor to the successor for a real political problem um, right. because what's going to happen is that contributions are going to have to rise. Uh, uh, or benefits will have to be cut, and there'll be all sorts of litigation over that. And the Democratic Party is going to is you know they're going to end up having to own it. One issue with the one party state is that there's only one there's only one party that can own what's happened for what go- goes well or what goes wrong. And um, and it's not going to be easy. I, I think he's making a mistake right now during a period of really flush cash coffers not to deal with some of these challenges that are expensive. But if you're not going to do it now, it's just going to be a lot more difficult for the next guy or gal who sits in that office. So a prediction, the governor will wade into this uh, in his state of the state address in 2023, coming off re-election in 2022. This is not election year issue. And what will he do in true Newsomian fashion? He'll appoint a task force, Lee. Gavin is great at task forces. Um, I, I don't know how many how many dozen task forces has he appointed, um, and and there's a common theme among all of those. I don't think they've, I don't think they've delivered anything tangible, have they? I'm still waiting for the oxygen task force to come back with this report. But, <laughs> uh, gentlemen, another area of um, that's an intersection between Washington and Sacramento is that California state officials didn't get what they hoped for in funding for high-speed rail in President Biden's $1 trillion infrastructure uh, bill. Most of those monies will go to the East Coast Amtrak routes and freight rail systems. High-speed rail may get some appropriations in the follow-up social spending bill. Um, Altogether, state may be able to cobble up about $4 billion for high-speed rail from both pieces of legislation. Um, Gentlemen, based on the current political conditions, our, our leaders... Uh, still California dreaming um, in the hope that in the, in the hope that they can complete a high speed uh, rail uh, system for the Golden State. What a what a fiasco. What a huge waste of, of taxpayer funding. We're now 
I believe this is, uh, is this now the 14th year? Bill, is this the 14th year since we passed that bond issue? Was uh, that, let's see. Was the that seed, money, seed money was 08, I believe. 08, okay. So yeah. nearly 14 years since we passed seed money. Um, do you happen, not, not that I expect you remember this, but do you, do you remember what the original cost was going to be? Was it yeah, it was ten. It was the original bond lien prop one A was a ten billion dollar down payment on a forty billion dollar system. Ten billion dollar down payment on a forty billion. That was system. that was going to be a three hour ride from Los Angeles to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, um, and we run. Everything goes off the rails after that. <laughs> Unintended. Yeah, literally, literally. I, I think I think when all is said and done, is the Merced Bakersfield line. I suspect that'll be about 40 billion or maybe that, maybe I'm even, I think I'm probably low uh, on that. Um, And, you know, and it's not, it's not just cost overruns. It's um, it's, I I mean, I applaud the federal government to thumb in their nose that California's high-speed rail project, because we, we we have wasted, I mean, we've wasted so much money in that we have had, we've had rail built on land in which we did not get permission or did not buy the land from the owner. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 yeah, and when you think about failures at that level, in the private sector, what, what happens? You clean house. Right. Um, I mean, the rail system, that you probably, you know, high-speed rail has been run about as badly as the employment department and all the fraud and all the legitimate claims that have been delayed for months and months and months. There's just no way you can look at that project and say, and, and not say we have really messed up. We have we have we have screwed the rest of the country in terms of the, of the federal tax dollars that came to us. It has been a monumental fiasco. Um, what seemed like a great idea at a high price then um, right. now is just a complete albatross. And Newsom, unless he said something very recently, he has been very coy about his commitment to this. Um, and uh, I, I really don't know uh, if anyone has any idea of how much this will ever be built. Um, it all boils down to how many dollars people are willing to spend on it and whether the government can turn it around and actually make something out of this. Yeah. Uh, so this was um, the first uh, political mistake that Newsom made as governor. He, uh, in his uh, first state of the state address, I believe it was, Lee, he said that you know, high-speed rail is just not working. Words that effect and gave all the impression he wanted to pull the plug on it. And all heck broke out loose in Sacramento and he had to back and say, oh, no, 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 it's not what I meant. He's just, I'm worried about the system the way it is right now. But, you know, you raise a very good point here. The system is still tens of billions of dollars shy of what it would need to build the whole line if it were to actually uh, try to build the whole line. And you've just missed your opportunity in Washington because the way Washington looks is going to shape up after 2022. I don't think there's going to be a Democratic Congress willing to spend $1.75 trillion on programs like this. So where's California going to find the money? Um, well, you can't do it in surpluses like this. We just talked about a uh, $26 billion surplus. That would not do it. Uh, you could put a measure on the ballot to try to do bonds for it, but that's going to lose in this environment. Uh, maybe the Chinese could come in and build it. They seem to like to go around the world and build things for other people. But um, I just don't see how it's going to come to fruition. And even if it does come to fruition, Lee, it's not going to live up to the original promise, which was a very you know pleasing one to go from Los Angeles to San Francisco and you know 
you know, Wi-Fi comfort of the rail in, you know, three hours. So um, I, they've got to stop it at some point and just kind of say, this is not working. And I think the smart play would be lead to take what money is there and address it to the more immediate need in California, which is local transportation, you know, rail in Los Angeles, rail in San Jose, you know, light rail, surface rail. No, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. From 20 miles out and in is where the, is where the emphasis should be. That's where it probably always should have been. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we dream big and, we, and we're paying the price for dreaming big. You know, in Texas, Texas is doing some similar things. Um, but, Bill, they brought, in, uh, they brought in Japanese corporations who are really, really good at putting in high-speed rail. Um, that, was a, that, was, that was a big, big benefit to their thinking as something we didn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't think we have enough money right now to finish Bakersfield, Bakersfield to Merced, which, um, which, you know, is not San Francisco to Los Angeles. And, um, and ironically, um, that not that San Francisco to LA will ever get built in our lifetime, but if it was going to be built right now, that three hours wouldn't be three hours because those futuristic high-speed engines are, are not what we have anymore. Right. What's going to be going between Bakersfield and Merced, to my understanding, is diesel, okay, again, in the most progressive state in the country, fighting climate change, fighting pollution, it's going to be super-powered diesel that'll get trains, I think, above 100, but not to those speeds that were being advertised when we passed that, when we passed that seed money bond. Mm-hmm. So the taxpayers, the taxpayers take it in the shorts once again in the Golden State. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. This has been very interesting and timely analysis. Jonathan, always interesting. I hope you gentlemen have a uh, have a great Thanksgiving holiday. It's fun I do too. And Lee, I was going to ask you Thanksgiving Day, since you're down in Santa Barbara, are you doing the four mile run or are you going to do the turkey paddle? <laughs> you know, my my, um, my my son my son requested a uh, a brined turkey and uh, and and stuffing that I make. So I think. Uh, we're going to have the TV on. He'll probably switch in between basketball and football. Um, uh, I'm going to try to get him in to, uh, to help me in the kitchen, but I suspect I'm going to have the apron on and, uh, and, a gla- and, and perhaps a, a, a glass of wine in my hand. Um, and uh, the missus, uh, hopefully she'll be helping me. But uh, oftentimes, oftentimes the union rules that, that go on in my house tend not to work so well, not work so well for me. So well, you're, gonna, you're, you're with your family in, um, in South, South Carolina? I am. And on uh, Thanksgiving Day, I'll have four little grandnephews running around this house, uh, ages uh, five to three. So I think I'll be hitting the wine or bourbon or something stronger much earlier in the nice. day than you. Nice. <laughs> so they're, nice. They're, great little, they're great little kids and you know they'll have a lot of fun running around doing stuff here. And uh, South Carolina is a very pleasant here right now. It's just very interesting, by the way, not to get to it. Uh, trust we do want to sign off. Uh, it is really those people in California who haven't traveled much, they should come to a state like this just to see how the other half lives because Nobody's wearing a mask around here, Lee and Jonathan. I find myself repeatedly walking into buildings and restaurants and reaching into my pocket for my mask and realizing no one's wearing one. I don't need to wear one here. So it's just it's it's part of the problem with COVID, I guess. It's part of you know the, the challenge we have in trying to kick this thing. But in this part of the country, it's just a reminder: this is not California. Well, no, no, it's not. We're unique. We're unique, and you'll you'll uh, you'll be reminded that once once you get back. Yeah, <clears throat> Jonathan. I hope you have a you have, I hope you have a great holiday with your family. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll be staying up here up in uh, Sunnyvale. So, okay. Okay, guys. Well, we'll see you, see you in a couple of weeks.
You have been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word and get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at BillWhalenCA. Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroides sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.